Imagine, you men, young men, you ask a girl out on a date, and she says yes, and she, you go pick her up, you make plans, you make prep preparations, you drive all the way to the, the location, you're very excited. When you get there, you park the car, and no sooner have you parked the car, she, she says, hey, uh, I'm excited to go on this date, but before we go into the restaurant, there's one thing I need to tell you. So as a young man, you kind of take a gulp, like, okay. I need you to know something about me before we go any further. Once upon a time, I used to be a prostitute. I was picked up on the streets as a call girl. I was taken all over the land. And I left that a long time ago, but I just want you to know that before we move forward with the date. If you were a young man in that situation, how would you respond? What would go through your mind? What would you do? Uh, maybe while I was telling that story, you're thinking of um, Richard Gere and Julia Roberts and the, the, the movie My, uh, Pretty Women. If you lived in the 80s or 90s, you're familiar with that. Or maybe if you received a word from God that said, I'm supposed to go out with this person no matter what, you'd think, well, is this an indecent proposal? But what would go through your mind? Lawrence Richards gives this illustration in his, one of his books. He says this, imagine the story of Mr. and Mrs. H. Mr. H's wife left him and three kids. Two of them are teenagers. She's moved to another town, has been living with uh, different guys. Even though Mr. H has repeatedly tried to get her to return, He's even helped her financially when she's been in need. All she does is laugh at him. Still, Mr. H can't seem to accept what has happened and dreams of getting his wife back. If you were to sit down with Mr. H, how would you counsel him? What would you say? What would you tell him? What kind of biblical advice would you give? Are there any chapters or verses that you would point to when it came to this situation? This morning, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. If you don't have a hard copy with you, you can get out your $1,000 Bibles that have a camera on them. And we're going to be in the book of Hosea. By the way, I, I borrowed or copied or stole that from a great speaker back at Liberty University. Years ago, my dad hired a couple of amazing artists to draw and come up with um, illustration covers for each book of the Bible. And this is the one that was drawn for the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet in the Bible that God called under similar circumstances to what we just talked to, to marry that woman, an unfaithful woman. The Bible says she was promiscuous. In the book of Hosea, God paints a picture, a love story of sorts, of a righteous man taking in and, and marrying wed to a promiscuous woman. She had been promiscuous in her past life, but God gives Hosea a picture of what's to come. The promiscuous woman represented, represented a wayward land, a wayward nation, a wayward people. The wayward woman ravished by her lovers and yet still finding herself on the auction block of life with nothing left. 
And God giving Hosea this command, I want you to buy her back. What would you do? These are tough decisions if this were a real life situation that you were in. But in the book of Hosea, God's prophet, man of God, found himself in that very situation. You could look at the, the book of Hosea as a sonnet or a soliloquy. At times reading very much like Shakespeare. Other times reading like a father pleading for his children. A dad praying for the prodigal return. A husband earnestly pleading for his wife. Hosea gives us something to be probed, something to be deciphered. Maya Angelou once put it, words mean more than what is set down on paper. It takes the human voice to infuse them with the shades of deeper meaning. And I would add in this context, it takes the study of scripture in all its forms of literature, in its context, historical setting, grammatical phrase, deeper meanings, underlying overtones. Looking at even the analogy in this book, the symbolism that's portrayed. Because I believe God called Hosea to be a living object lesson, symbolizing God's love relationship with his people, the people of Israel and the people of Judah and God's ultimate goal of redemption, drawing them back, the wayward lover, back to him. Look at Hosea chapter one, starting at verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea Son of Biri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. And she conceived and bore him a son. I know people who would say, well, God speaks to me. God has spoken. How would you like it if God said that? Gomer has three children. I've heard different takes on it that three children with three different men. And the first one obviously seems to be from Hosea. Maybe they were all from Hosea. We don't know. The jury's out, but she has three children, each with a different name. Each one of their names carry a specific meaning. The first one, Jezreel, was a son. Was named Jezreel because God is going to punish Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. He prophesies even in that passage an end to the kingdom of Israel. Then the next one, Lo Ruhama, a daughter whose name by definition means not loved. For God says, I will no longer show love to Israel that I at all, that I should at all forgive them. Judah, though, the passage says he will love and save. Then the third child was named Lo Ami. The, the third child was born right after the second one was weaned. It was a quick conception. Lo-Ami was named Lo-Ami because of the meaning, not my people. Verse 8 says, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Those are harsh words. 
I don't even know fully how to digest that because there obviously was more going on than I can fully comprehend. But here's a good point I want you to, if you're taking notes, write this down. You cannot just treat God any way you want. You can't just treat God any way you want. God deserves our reverence. He deserves our respect. He deserves our attention. He deserves our worship. And while he doesn't demand it from a point of we're free will creations. This whole concept of what God has designed and desired is this covenant relationship, a, a mutual commitment. And in this passage, the big sin pointed out is that of spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. Well, what, what do you mean spiritual adultery? If we went to the book of Malachi and God told Malachi to write it down, would you dare rob God? Well, how am I robbing God? Well, you're not giving your tithes, your offerings. You're withholding from Him. Another book in the Minor Prophets focuses on you're building your own houses, but what are you doing about mine? This lack of reverence, this lack of worship, this lack of commitment, this lack of heart for the Lord. And in this book, God is going to look at whatever they've done. We're going to look at that. as so egregious that it's equivalent to unfaithfulness to your spouse. Cheating on your spouse. Wandering away from God. Well, look now. Back to verse 1. Look at the list of kings. I want to point this out. I thought this was fascinating. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Buri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That's in Israel. Then in Judah, during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Here if we put the timeline side by side. You can see that Hosea's ministry ministry spans somewhere between 767 and 687 BC. Now you do all that together, there'd be 80 years there. His ministry probably wasn't that long. It could be anywhere from 37 though to 40, 50, 60 years. Hosea's ministry spans several decades. And the reason I point this out is because this is no trivial thing when we see what God is comparing their spiritual adultery to. It's no trite matter, no laughing matter, no, no flippant matter. This is severe. Hosea experienced all this. He saw a lot of events, a lot of change, many kings and religious leaders and other leaders of the people. If you have time, and this is just kind of for your own reference, go to First and Second Kings, go to First and Second Chronicles, go to Second Samuel. Look up what you can find about these kings and what was happening during those times. But just for fun, fill in the blank. You can change the blank, but you can't change the blank. You can change the blank, but you can't change the blank. Now, a quick Google search would say this. You can change the furniture, but you can't change the lighting. You can change the name, but you can't change the game. You can change the technology, but you can't change the people. You can change the desired audience, but you can't change the truth of what they want and believe. You can change the hair, but you can't change the cowboy. 
You can change the leaves, but you can't change the roots. You can change the future, but you can't change the past. Now here's another one. You can take the blank out of blank, but you can't take the blank out of blank. Um, quick Google search. You can take the girl out of Texas, but you can't take Texas out of the girl. I don't know, Tessa. You still got Texas? You can take the girl out of the small town, but you can't take the small town out of the girl. You can take the person out of the place, but you can't take the place out of the person. Here's what I'm trying to get at. There is a stubborn, ingrown toenail effect of this thing called sin. We have been born with this inherent sinful nature, and even in coming to Christ, we still wrestle with it. I want to be honest about that. Even in coming to grace by faith, salvation, we're going to be lifelong learners and lifelong strugglers. But that is no excuse to rebel. And the people in ancient Israel had every opportunity to respond, every opportunity to repent, every opportunity to return to God, and yet they persisted in their rebellion, their stubbornness. And so I'm kind of setting the stage. What in the world did these people do? What did they do so bad that God would compare them and set up this object lesson through the prophet of some promiscuous runaway bride going after other lovers? Well, your assignment as a church this week is to read the book of Hosea if you choose to accept the challenge. And this morning I'm going to share just a few verses. Here, here are some things that the people did that caused God to respond the way and react the way he did. Hosea 2, verses 8 and 13. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lover's but me she forgot, declares God. This morning I'm almost asking you to, to insert yourself into a parallel universe. Those familiar with the Bible can recount the golden calf that was erected by the people of Israel after God led them victoriously across the Great Red Sea on their way to the Promised Land. Moses disappears and he wasn't gone for very long, though longer than they expected. And what they do, they turned around and made for themselves an idol. But Baal, if you want to call it Baal, Tony alluded to this. That was the Canaanite gods. That was the pagan gods idol. What are the people of Israel doing worshiping that? And it's an interesting parallel for us to think of. Okay, God gives us what we need. We go out, we work, we get money, but ultimately... Those things come from the Lord, the ability to work, the jobs that he brings. What do we use our resources with? Are we at all turning what he's given us and squandering it with false gods? That's a, a, a thought to take home. Look at this next one, Hosea 4, 1 through 2. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds. 
I can get murder, but cursing? I didn't think that was such a big deal. Well, what, I know I slip up with my words here and there, but does that really matter to God? Does he really hear? Does he really care? Does he really under... God takes account. Lying. Stealing. Are lumped up with murder and adultery. It's sin before God. He's calling them out. Holding it against them. Hosea 4 verse 7. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. Ow, that hurts. The more religious leaders they had, the worse they sinned. How can that be? This is God's charge, Hosea 4, 10 through 13. They will eat, but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution, but not flourish because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. My people consult a wooden idol. A diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills. Under oak, poplar, and terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. And therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. All right, this is getting ugly. This isn't looking good. God is not bringing to them trite or trivial offenses. This is getting deeper and darker, and it's what they're doing. And in a lot of ways, it's still what goes on today. Maybe we don't have all the, the right pictures and places. Hopefully you haven't been there, but there are some dark places on this planet Earth. There's some dastardly deeds done. And some of it's in the name of religion or idol worship, pagan ritual. History speaks of these types of things. Even verse 10, they will eat but not have enough. Have you ever noticed that when you're not giving God your first, you're not giving him your best, you're not giving him your finest, you find yourself lacking, suffering, struggling, barely wading through, lacking the presence and power of the divine almighty. But is there any room and is there any possibility that in our own lives we've been guilty of idolatry? Setting up anything before God as higher priority than God in place of God. Hosea 4, 16 to 18. The Israelites are stubborn like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. What's this reference all the time to prostitution? Well, Baal was a fertility god. And Baal's female counterpart, and that was part of their religion, that was part of their ritual, was to engage in wicked sex acts prostitution, temple prostitutes, you name it. Hosea 5 verses 4 through 5. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Judah also stumbles with them. 
I read not too long ago, but once upon a time, how do you tell an arrogant person? And the trick is, is it's not 100%, okay? Sometimes I gotta watch myself. But a lot of times it's that tilted up chin. That tilted up chin and the eyes almost looking kind of glint down. And, and you watch when you're talking to somebody and, and try to figure out, am I dealing with somebody who's humble and gonna be reasonable and honest, or am I dealing with a proud person? Because if so, you might be better off just walking away. But their arrogance, Israel's arrogance against God. Have we been guilty of that? Have I? I think at times I have. You know, it's like going through life and saying, okay, well, I see the speed limit sign, but those rules don't apply to me. I know it's not good to do this or that, lying, stealing, cursing, but yeah, you know, wave it off. What kind of attitude is that really toward God? Is that one of reverence, one of worship, one of humility? No. Arrogance. The sin of the spirit of prostitution is in their heart. Sometimes it's not just what you do on the outside, but it's what is in your heart within. Hosea 6, 8-9, Gilead is a city of evil doers stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. When I turned on the morning news this morning and I was seeing kidnappings that had been filmed, bloodshed all around, violence, evil, wickedness, murder, Hosea was playing out in my mind. This isn't anything new, and it's certainly not completely old because it's symbolic of mankind. Look at Hosea 7, verses 1 through 5. Again, the parallel universe. This is written to those people back then in the 8th century BC. And think about it as it could connect with you now. God says, whenever I would heal Israel... The sins of Ephraim are exposed and the crimes of Samaria revealed. They practice deceit. Thieves break into houses, bandits rob in the street. But they do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers burned, burning like an oven, whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. On the day of the festival of our king, the princes become inflamed with wine and he joins hands with the mockers. See, there's times where God brings healing and God brings relief and God brings his mercy and his grace and, and he brings his blessing, his benefit, his reward. And then his people have still yet turned their back on him and gone back to their wicked and wayward schemes. Verse 5, on that day of the festival of our king. See, so much in Hosea, the rise and fall of the nation would often parallel who was in charge. The rise and fall of leaders and whether they would turn to God and seek the Lord or not. As, as, as the leader would lead, so often would go the nation, but it was the hearts of the people. And, and in my notes here it says, need we go on any further? Hosea 7, verses 8 through 10. Ephraim mixes with the nations. 
It's when you take a, a, what's supposed to be a godly, righteous nation and, and, and they start forming alliances with those who do evil, who worship false gods, joining together, trying to mix light with darkness or water with oil, and it, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Ephraim is a flat loaf not turned over, foreign or sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His gray, his hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him, but despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. I want you to take, if you're writing notes down, two simple things. Return to the Lord and search for him. Return to the Lord and search for him. Because if you haven't had this happen already, I believe you'll have a moment where you personally need to search for the Lord. And you don't feel like playing hide and go seek that day, let's pretend. But you're wrestling because there's something going on and, and, and it's, whether it's life not making sense or you're praying, you're praying, you're praying and there's not this obvious answer, but God wants you to search for him. And why he makes himself, I'm saying metaphorically speaking, hard to find. Why he makes us persist and plod on, often in the dark, do you have an answer? Because I call it faith. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, the last verse, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And that first one, faith, oftentimes in difficult situations, we need to press on and pursue God and search for Him in complete and utter faith, despite the darkness, despite the unknown, despite the unanswered questions, because that's what He wants us to do. No, that's what he wants us to do. Trusting him, that's the hope part. Hoping and believing he will make a way and he will reveal and he will help and he will save. We gotta keep our eyes on him. Woe to them because they have strayed from me, it says in Hosea 7:13. Destruction to them because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves, appealing to their gods for grain and new wine. But they turn away from me. I train them and strengthen their arms, but they plot evil against me. Again, this message is primarily written to the people in the 8th century. But I believe it has some application today. A few years ago in youth ministry, they are drawing attention to the, uh, the problem of cutting Teenagers, but I've, I've known older adults who do it. They, they slash themselves to, to create some type of a release, the letting of blood somehow to, to, ease, to ease their pain, but it never seems to go away by doing that. It just makes things worse, even if they felt relief for a moment. And that custom of cutting, of slashing, goes clear back to pagan practices way hundreds of years into the B.C. Hosea 8, verse 8. Through 11. Israel is swallowed up. She is now among the nations like something no one wants. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Although they have sold themselves among the nations, I will now gather them together. They will begin to waste away under the oppression of the mighty king. Though Ephraim had built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. Israel has forgotten their maker and built palaces. 
Judah has fortified many towns, but I will send fire on their cities that will consume their fortresses. One of the big sins pointed out here is the, that of made, Israel made alliances with other nations, paying them from the royal treasuries to come in with their horses, with their soldiers, to go out and fight their battles instead of calling on the Lord. And I look at that both figurative and also literal as we look at our day and age. For example, our nation, which at one point was founded as one nation under God, still in our pledge, still is on our coin and God we trust. I hope we live like it. But how many times have, as a nation have we formed alliances with pagan nations that don't honor God, don't worship Him, trusting in them for our wealth or for our resources, for our oil or whatever it is we need, and yet... At root of that is a deeper issue. I don't, I'm not saying it's bad to do business, <laughs> except that our trust has been put there. Our hope has been put there instead of in God. And that is bad business. But personally, where have we squandered? Where have we made alliances? Where have we called on somebody or something else other than God to bring us the help, the deliverance that we need? Are we guilty? Personally of spiritual adultery cheating on the Lord by turning to another To solve and provide for our needs. These are big questions Israel cries out to me our God we acknowledge you But Israel has rejected what is good an enemy will pursue him They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval With their silver and gold they make idols for themselves to their own destruction Hosea 11, 1 through 2, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to images. Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of these people, they offer human sacrifices they kiss calf idols. I just, I shared all that so you guys would understand the gravity and the intensity of what's going on here. And yet I'm also asking that maybe we, as individuals, as a church, as God's people, His holy people, we even as a nation, raise up that mirror, reflecting on the, the lens of Scripture and, and what do we see in regard to our own selves? Is there anything that we have done? But in this book, God brings charges of Israel's unfaithfulness, spiritual adultery, wickedness and corruption, prostitution, murder, violence. There is no acknowledgement of God in the land, cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. What are some examples of spiritual adultery today? Can you think of it? Materialism. I was like, this is a bad example, but I was reading this week, there's gonna be $5 billion of revenue and commerce generated through Taylor Swift. Okay, I'm not saying there's any idolatry there. But, I want us to just give some deep thought to, okay, where, where have we cheated on the Lord? Now, yesterday, 
couple guys and I took a tour of the Mount Angel Abbey. Beautiful, beautiful facility up on the hill. Some of the things I noted though, you know, in, in, in one of the places, there are a lot of statues. Some people were praying to the statues. Beautiful courtyard, beautiful scenery, lots of imagery. They had a museum. And in the museum, they had in their cases several idols. This one contains a picture, or not a picture, this one contains an idol of Buddha. That one more of a, something you find in South America. Over here, this one had, um, a, I'm not saying it's an idol, but it, it, it was a staff that resembles a snake, and there's some other things going on here in their relics cases. But then this one caught my attention, maybe even more. It's a big rack. I, I, you know, you, you've seen those trading cards, the baseball cards. You go a little further and there was this one. I just picked it up at random and on the back it had a prayer. Here's what it said. Oh, faithful friend and powerful intercessor, St. Gerard, please take my intentions before the throne of our Lord and plead my cause before his divine majesty. St. Gerard, patron of motherhood and children, I bring before you my heart's deepest longings. I don't even think I need to read more. Instead of praying before the throne of God, this is a prayer to St. Gerard. The Bible doesn't say to do that. So what constitutes spiritual adultery or, or unfaithfulness to the Lord? Where even among Christians or among churches, there has been a spirit of prostitution, turning to other people, turning to other things, instead of turning to God. We can thank God for his indescribable mercy, his amazing and unfailing grace. If you wanna change your life, change your view of God. Recognize him for who he is, the creator of the universe, the author of life. He extends over all of creation. And yet he comes to meet you and me personally in a relationship, not a religion. Ask God to change your heart, to renew your mind, recommit yourself to a path of obedience, confess your sins, repent, and move forward in right living. It's on a personal level, it's easy to, to look at myself in the mirror and say, well, nothing I've done is really that bad. But when we hold up the word of God, we're all strugglers. And so Hosea, we get to chapter three and the Lord says this, he taught, God spoke to him, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So he goes to the town square and I'm trying to picture this. If, how did this work? Did she really prostitute herself before other men where she would go up on the auction block, the chopping block? Because that's what we see here. 
She's there in the town square. And, and here's what Hosea writes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days and you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way towards you. For the Israelites, and this is kind of God's punchline in chapter three. For the Israelites will live many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without the ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Where do we see Jesus in this picture? Israel went through a stretch of 400 silent years. They were invaded, they were ravished by the Babylonian Empire, the Greco-Persian Empire, the Roman Empire. And what was God's ultimate goal? In that day, chapter two says, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle, I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. See, we can't change the past, but we can look to the future and this time. Christ has already come. God has sent Jesus, his one and only son, to be Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And our job, our purpose is to worship him and to live for him and to love him with uncompromising love. Hosea chapter 3. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will. That's chapter six, by the way. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. When I read that verse where it says, we will press on to acknowledge the Lord. I, you hear some of this common um, terminology. We're going to lean in. We're going to press in. Lean into the Lord. Press on to acknowledge him. That's where we should be leaning. Not into our own strength, our own wind direction, our own gale force winds, but lean into the Lord. Here's the uh, last verse in the uh, book. I'm sorry, it's not. It's chapter 40. Hosea 13, 14. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O oh, death, are your plagues? Where, O oh, grave, is your destruction? God will deliver. So I'm just going to kind of go real fast now to say this. God has designed that we live in a covenant relationship with him, a binding agreement. And when you made the decision to step forward and receive Christ, you willingly and voluntarily surrendered that Jesus be your Lord. 
your savior, your master, your Lord. That he is your king, that he is your ruler. It's, it's a confession of faith that every day we have to live out, almost like renewing our vows each day. God, I, I up my commitment to follow you. When we sin, when we fall down, when we do wrong, we confess that. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But to press on searching God, to continue to seek him, to acknowledge him, to look to him. Because a natural tendency is for us to commit spiritual adultery. Another natural tendency is for pastors to want something portable, something practical, something polished that you can take home. That's it. How does God feel when we fail him? Look at Hosea 11. What does God want us to do? Look at Hosea 14. But I'm going to end with a couple of verses from Hosea 14. It says this, return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to him. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. This was written again to the 8th century BC Jewish nations of Israel and Judah. And yet there's application for today. And in the Old Testament, Israel referred to that Jewish people, that geopolitical nation. And yet ultimately, Israel was the people of God. There were others grafted in. And in the New Testament, Israel refers to God's chosen people to be a holy and pure nation, the people of God, those in Christ Jesus. That is the Israel today in the New Testament. And so there's some principles, there's some application, this portable stuff, whatever you need to do. I'm not sure how this whole message strikes you, but return to the Lord. Your sins have been forgiven. Take words with you and return to him. Forgive all our sins, you say to him, and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. What is that? Worship and praise, which should come from our heart, which should come from our, our view of God being greater and worthy of our worship and reverence and praise. And the last verse of the book, who is wise? Let him discern these things, who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The rebellious walk in, the righteous walk in them, excuse me, but the rebellious stumble in them. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. And so we go back to the beginning of the book. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. Has the word of the Lord come to you this morning? And if so, what would it be? What would he want you to do? And where do we find Christ? He, 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 he comes to us as the long-awaited king, the, the Messiah. And now we're going to go to the Lord's Supper. And as we go before the Lord's Supper, I want us to just prepare our hearts before the Lord. I'm going to have a young man who's been with us a few Sundays, Jesse, come up. And just share a little bit of his testimony, a little piece of his heart before we celebrate the Lord's Supper.
Hey guys. Is this thing on? Hello. Of course it's on here. Uh, I've been coming here probably about the last three weeks now. My name is Jesse, but if you cannot remember that, call me Mario. <laughs> and uh, I was addicted to drugs for 10 years, and the long story short, Jesus saved my life. And uh, I live for him every day now, so... I am happy to be here, and uh, Jesus is definitely here with you guys, so you'll be seeing more of me. Come say hi. I'm not going to bite or anything, so <laughs> stay here. Oh. And I'm going to ask Dan Hardman to also come up here. And I'm going to have these two young men distribute the bread and the cup, the Lord's Supper. As they do that, we're going to put on, um, it's a song we're familiar with, but they're going to sing it in English and in Hebrew. As we do this, may we seek the Lord in prayer. Spiritual adultery, any idols in our life that need to be removed, anything we need to let go of, but it's not just about letting go of, it's, 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 it's embracing then. Jesus is Lord, Christ is our Savior, relationship with the Father given for us by the bread, the cup, through what Christ has done. So let's worship the Lord together and prepare our hearts.
You know, um, we're going to go into um, the Lord's Supper. And in studying the five chapters around 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a lot of the stuff that was going on in the book of Hosea was also going on in first century AD. See, Paul writes to a people out of a secular culture, a Greek culture, a culture of Greek gods and temple worship and idol worship. They had more idols than even some of the people before them. And then when they were called to come to Christ, they were both convicted but yet challenged to, to, to give those up because the natural human tendency is at times to want to hang on to old idols. Although they don't satisfy, they don't fully do anything, it's still tradition. And sometimes we seek instant gratification and when we lose sight of God, we go back to those things. Well, anyway, Paul is telling them, hey, you know what? You already came to Christ, but you need to turn away from that idolatry. You need to turn away from that sexual immorality. You need to quit going back to the temple prostitutes if, if that was in fact what they were doing, but they were to be called out of that. I don't know what your thing is. The other thing that came to mind is this. I know a lot of you have suffered through the trials of life. You've put up with a lot of your own share of evil and injustice and abuse and being treated unfairly. You've come out of some very dark and hard things. And God knows your pain. He took on our pain when he sent his son Jesus to the cross. He stretched out his arms of love. He bore the scars. He took on our infirmities, our diseases. He, he took it up on Calvary so that we could come to him and find life. There was a challenge this morning um, thinking about all this feedback going through my mind. Pastor Tim, we don't need another negative message. Nobody said that to me, but it was going through my head. And the message of the cross is this. It's God fulfilling what he promised in Hosea. Yet I will redeem them. Yet I will come back for them. Yet I will provide salvation and deliverance because it's found in no one else than Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why we're here today. That's the good news. That's the message of the gospel. That's the salvation hope. And it's not just for here and now. It's, it's for eternity. And it's not just for eternity. It's for today. It's a life to be lived. It's a relationship to be celebrated. And so we're reminded of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For, for what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And saying to his disciples, this bread, it is, it represents the new covenant that is in my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, it continues after supper, Paul took the cup. should say Jesus took the cup. The passage says, the same way after supper, he took the cup. Saying this cup represents the new covenant. Covenant, that relationship. 
that shared commitment, that binding agreement. This cup represents the new covenant that is in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Drink ye all of it. And so this morning, Heavenly Father, I just pray that those who have gathered here in a way that could only be done by you would sense a load being lifted, that, that they cast their cares to the foot of the cross, that they roll away because, God, you've got them in your hands. You've got them in your grip. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And now he is seated at the right hand of God, and God, one day he will come again. God, we pray for the people of Israel. We pray for what's going on, and we pray for an end of violence, that there would be peace. Lord, we pray that the captives and the hostages would be freed, that they'd be saved, that they'd be delivered, that you'd be there in their time of need. We pray that all would call upon you and be saved. Help us, God, not to look for our salvation, not to look for our answers in human terms, human things. Help us, God, to demolish any idols in our heart, in our house, in our lives. Help us to rid and remove those things, to burn them, to destroy them. And God, may you come in in even greater ways. We thank you, Lord, for this holy and sacred time of worship and the, the, the joy that we've been Enjoy through the fellowship today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good message.